The scripture reading for today comes from Philippians 2, 1 through 11, imitating Christ's humility. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, in any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but to each but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance a man, he humbled himself, by being obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. My name is Chris Schaffner. Uh, I've been going to Imago here with my family for a number of years. My pronouns are he and him. Uh, and I'll tell you, I was, I'm excited to be here to share with you today. Um, but I'm even more excited to hear that we're going to be able to dress uh, at this potluck like we just graduated, which means I will be Charles in charge. <laughs> I'm not sure if I can still feather my hair the way Scott Bayo did, uh, but I will give it my best. Uh, shot parted right down the middle, just wings for days on the side. Um, it's gonna be hard because I just got my hair cut. So, all right, greetings and salutations. Yes, you could probably the party source could help me. It is like Halloween spirit now, or spirit Halloween. I'm sure there's something. All right, um, greetings and salutations. I feel like that's something Paul would say. It feels so formal. All of his letters are like, grace be to you. Nah, I, that's not how I talk. But that's, that sounds like something Paul would say. So full disclosure, if you do know me and if you've heard me speak before, you know that I wrote this sermon when? Last night. Yeah, early this morning. Been working on notes since then. Um, that's just how my process works. So I've been thinking about it, chewing on it, procrastinating, putting it off. Uh, I'll get to it in a little bit. And then I had to rescue my kid from college, and then I had to drive across town to go help, and then something just always got in the way. No, we had to get her passport. Um, so uh, it kept getting pushed back and pushed back and pushed back, and so finally, uh, I'm like, I gotta get this thing done. So this is what she did. <laughs> Sorry. Um, full disclosure, though, is uh, I don't like Paul. I think Paul's kind of a jerk. Uh, Paul was a little extra. Paul was always like, thus saith the Lord, but I say, uh, as if God's word was incomplete without Paul's opinion on the matter. Um, but this is one of my favorite letters from Paul for a couple of reasons. Um, you know, Paul wrote this while he was imprisoned in Rome, um, and it is by far his most affectionate letter. And I'm not sure that affection is the, the term you would use to describe Paul, 
uh, when you read his other writings. Um, but he loved the church of Philippi. Um, and they were very dear to him, and for good reason. Um, so Paul wrote this while he was on actually house arrest uh, in Rome, and he was chained to a prison guard who he led to Christ. Um, and it is known as the most joy-filled letter that Paul wrote. So imagine this. You're on house arrest. You got an ankle bracelet on. They're monitoring you 24-7. What would you text your best friends to say? Like, what would, you, what would you convey about that experience? And how would you find encouragement in the midst of that to write to them to lift them up? How was Paul in such great spirits in the midst of such awful circumstances? Have you ever visited somebody in prison? Have you ever talked to anybody on probation that's under surveillance? It's not fun. You live under this constant sense of fear and scrutiny. And Paul, while he was incarcerated, was waiting trial in which he could have very well been sentenced to death. That's the, that's the context of what was happening uh, when Paul wrote this affectionate love letter to the church of, uh, of Philippians. This is, not, um, this is not a self-help book. It, it's not meant to be like a feel-good book, even though it has that tone. That Paul would say that his joy comes from a deep and abiding love in Jesus. In the 104 verses that are in the four chapters of Philippians, Paul mentions Jesus 51 times. There's, there's no question about where Paul draws uh, his source of joy from. So a little bit more context. So about 10 years have passed since Acts 16 occurred. And so in Acts 16, we'll talk about that. Um, so 10 years since he led um, Lydia, who was... Um, he introduced her to the way of Jesus. Um, it, it also was when Jesus um, and Saul, uh, I'm sorry, it, let me back up. I'm getting ahead of myself here. Paul was in prison several times during his ministry. And almost everywhere he went, there were people who wanted him in prison. And so it all began when Jesus confronted Paul, Saul at the time. God had chosen Saul, better to be known by his, his Roman name, Paul, for a special mission. And that mission that he chose Paul for was to be the apostle to the Gentiles. See, the Gentiles were not clean. They were not the Jews who were the God's chosen people. These were all the people on the outside that were determined unworthy initially. So Paul was a Jew. Paul grew up a persecutor of Christians, and he slaughtered many of them. He led slaughter and persecution of Christians. So think about the flip in his life, right? In which he went from persecutor and murderer to writing a majority of the New Testament as a, as a disciple, as a committed disciple of Christ. Fulfilling this calling would mean enduring many sufferings, including beatings, shipwrecks, stonings, and arrests for simply preaching the gospel. We know of three times that Paul was in prison. And given that Paul was in an active ministry for 35 years, he certainly would have been arrested and imprisoned maybe at other times as well. And Paul's arrests were the result of his being faithful to God's call in his life, not for committing evil, not for committing crimes in, in the sense of an antisocial definition of that. So Paul's first recorded arrest took place in Philippi, which was in Macedonia, 
which was the capital of northern Greece at the time, during a second missionary journey, sometime around 51 AD. So a demon-possessed slave girl kept following Paul and Silas around and shouting and harassing them and disrupting their work. These men, she would go on to say, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. The girl was disruptive and annoying, and Paul finally turned to her and commanded the demon to leave her. And then the girl's owners were furious about their source of income because they were soothsaying, and he had ruined that for them. So if you were to advance that to what that looks like today, imagine someone with seriously mental illness who was being exploited for profit by individuals. You just pissed off the wrong person. Right? You took away a source of income for them. That's what Paul did. And as a result, they started a riot. That was the accusation against Paul and Silas. And the magistrate, going against Roman law, had them beaten and thrown into prison without trial. You can read about that in Acts 16. Also, during this imprisonment, God caused an earthquake. And Paul and Silas's chains came loose. And the prison doors swung wide open. And when the jailer saw the doors open, he assumed that those prisoners had escaped and, knowing that he would be held responsible and possibly executed as well, he drew his sword to take his own life. But Paul called out to him, assuring him that all of the prisoners were still there. And the jailer was so overcome with gratitude that he took Paul and Silas into his home and tended their wounds. Paul spoke to him about Jesus, and the jailer and his entire household received Jesus as Lord, and they were baptized. Paul's first imprisonment resulted in glory for God and the salvation of many. This book is written specifically to those who identify as Christ followers. And, and that population in, uh, in Philippi were largely Gentiles. So I don't want you to read this as a historical letter. I don't want us to talk about it as a historical document. I want you to think instead of the excitement that Lydia, the demon-possessed girl, and the jailer felt when they opened it and read it for the first time, not knowing if Paul was even still alive. Keep in mind, Paul had introduced him to the way of Jesus, and they have this special relationship. So the excitement in which they received this news from Paul. Paul wasn't aware that he was writing portions of the New Testament when he wrote this letter. He was just writing a letter of encouragement to his friends who were also comparatively new to the faith. He was also writing to the, the, the church of Philippians for a few reasons. First of all, to thank them. They supported him while he was incarcerated. We'll get into what that meant and why that was uh, in a little bit. But in the Roman criminal punishment system, Rome did not provide food or supplies for prisoners. They were often kept in homes, and that, that food and supplies that they needed for survival was often provided by family and friends, if one was lucky enough to have any. He also wrote to encourage them. Even though he was going through it, he didn't want any of them to worry about him. And he wrote them also to warn them. Since Paul had left Philippi, other teachers had come in and were teaching things that were just not true. Paul wanted them to know that there were false teachers and to remind them of the things that he had previously taught them 
so that there was fidelity to the gospel. Remember, Paul is writing to Christians, and it's important to remember this theme. Um, not to the general public. This isn't a, a book on how to discover happiness. Uh, this was a letter of encouragement to people who have been supporting him. And so if one is not a follower of the way of Jesus, that's okay. It just means that Philippians probably won't speak to them much. There are some really famous verses that come out of Philippians um, that many of us hold dear, uh, such as uh, Philippians 1.21, for, for me to live is Christ and for me to die is gain. Or Philippians 3.8, I consider everything a loss because of the passing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And maybe one of the most famous verses of all time is Philippians 4.13, which is, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But by the time Paul writes Philippians, he has been preaching and following the way of Jesus and planting faith communities for 30 years. He doesn't know if yet... Um, he doesn't know it yet, but he's going to die in about two and a half years after he sends this letter to his friends. So these are not words of a young man filled with theories or a wealthy businessman pontificating on the beach somewhere. We get the gift of hearing the words of a time-tested disciple who's faced countless trials and troubles as a result of his relentless pursuit of the way of Jesus. And his words have weight because he's actually lived what he's taught. So again, imagine you're sitting in a small room at night with a couple of your close friends. You're sitting by candlelight and eagerly devouring the words of your friend and your inspiration. There are themes throughout the book of Philippians, themes about friendship and about trials and humility and obedience and contentment. And we'll explore those briefly in 30 minutes. Um, but let's start off with friendship. Have you ever known someone that was facing a really challenging season of life, but somehow still managed to have a deep sense of joy. Maybe they were experiencing treatment for cancer. Maybe they experienced a miscarriage or recently went through a divorce. All these types of experiences, it would be absolutely normal to be miserable. So when they seem to possess joy, it makes us wonder how they could be in such a good, positive frame of mind during such a difficult time. The Apostle Paul is someone who would justifiably feel miserable. Paul, when he wrote this, again, was under house arrest, didn't know if he would be executed, and was under 24-7 surveillance while chained to soldiers. It was during these experiences that Paul gave us the first clue to joy. Gratitude. Specifically, gratitude for others. When life is challenging, the natural tendency is to focus on ourselves to even possibly withdraw into our, 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 ourselves, into isolation. Most of our time is spent feeling sorry for ourselves and our situation and dreading what might come next. And the problem with that is that the more you think about yourself, the more sorry you feel for yourself. And according to Paul, the best way to find joy during difficult times is not to scarf ice cream, to wear sweatpants, to binge watch TV shows or go shopping, and no shame if that's your go-to, it's mine. Okay, But he would say that joy is found in friendship and in service to others. So one of the basic tenets of the 12-step community is to be of service to others. Here you have people, a group of people, all struggling with debilitating substance use disorders, and one of the primary remedies 
is to commit acts of service to others. My first sponsor, Daniel, told me as a young buck in AA that I needed to talk less and that I had nothing to share of any value with the group. He said what I needed to do instead was make sure I keep everyone's coffee cups full and to empty the ashtrays after the meetings were over, take out the trash and to sweep up the building. Not only was I offended, I was pissed. But I also didn't know what else to do, so I just did that. And it didn't take me long before I discovered work, joy in that work. It gave me meaning and purpose that I had been missing. To know that I was providing a service to others who were just trying to survive another day without giving into their demons. Paul could have started his letter by complaining. I shouldn't be here, they treated me awful, the food sucks, etc. That's not what Paul does. Instead of feeling sorry for himself, he talks about how grateful he is for his friends, and he talks about his spiritual life. And he does this implying that the two are intimately connected together. Remember, again, who Paul is writing to here. He's not talking about praying for everyone or that he's grateful for everyone like it's some kind of trite, shallow, saccharine, sweet uh, line of BS. He's, he's writing to the very people who are caring for him in some of his most desperate times, who have been faithful in following his teachings and even sent him a companion and money while incarcerated. These are the folks that he has mentored and discipled over the years. In this case, Paul is talking to spiritual partners not just general friends. He defines a spiritual partner as this. One, partners in spreading the good news about Christ from the time you first heard it until now. And two, faithful friends in the good times and the bad. These are not just casual acquaintances. As you hear Paul's descriptions of what a spiritual partner is, does anybody come to mind for you is there anyone who faithfully walks with you in your relationship with Christ? I want you to bring that person to your mind and to hold them there for a moment. Pay special attention to what you're feeling. Most likely it's joy. Joy, in the context of this relationship, you are known and cared for and loved and challenged and even a better version of who you were created to be. That's friendship. That's spiritual partnership. That's who Paul was writing to. That's what Paul was lifting up. But there are trials. There's difficult things that happen. And since trials are inevitable, Paul knows the importance of these spiritual partners as they will be the source of hope and strength and encouragement that we all would draw from to endure the challenges that we face. What was the happiest day of your life? I want you to think about that for a moment. Was it your wedding? Was it childbirth? Was it a, a, an accomplishment of some sort? Was it graduation? Was it a raise? Was it buying something big? She's, yes, like I was the happiest day of your life, right? I love that. I love that. Are we in agreement? Oh, okay. okay. I just want to make sure. Just stir the pot a little bit before I send you home on a Sunday. Was it checking something off your bucket list? Trudy and I were recently gifted free tickets to see Elton John on this farewell tour. 11th row. 
We sat so close, we got fabulous gay glitter and confetti all over us. <laughs> and it was remarkable. He's 75 years old and he played for a solid three hours. It brought so much happiness. And science supports that. When, we're, when we have happy experiences, our, brace, our brains release tons of feel-good chemicals and endorphins, like dopamine and serotonin, and we feel happy. We were happy uh, for hours leading up to the show, for three solid hours that he played, and for hours and even days afterwards. No one's happiest moments include sadness, trouble, or pain. That's the difference between happiness and joy. Happiness is dependent on a specific circumstance, whereas joy is dependent on the relationships in your life regardless of your circumstances. Difficult trials are always easier to endure when you are surrounded by loving, supportive relationships. Isn't that the work of the church through Christ? The restoration of all things, people to each other, people to God, and then people to earth. You know, the result of sin is separation. In fact, separation, because of the shame that Adam and Eve felt, might be the original sin. The separation. It is the coming to believe that we have done something that makes us unworthy of love and belonging to God, to each other, and to the earth. Our sin then is perpetuated as a means of navigating our time on earth in a constant state of disconnection from each other. So we either withdraw, believing we are unworthy, or we overindulge to avoid and to numb the feelings of feeling unworthy, or we try to force connection in ways that are toxic, unhealthy, and even harmful to ourselves and others. So how can someone have encouragement in the midst of captivity? How can someone have joy in the middle of misery? Paul viewed his obstacles as opportunities. Everything else in the letter to the Philippians hinges on one word in verse 14. And because of my imprisonment, most of the believers here have gained confidence and boldly speaks God's message without fear. Did you catch the word? The word here is because. I do not believe God causes bad things to happen just for God's pleasure. Like, let's strike somebody with cancer so they'll do my will. That is not the kind of God I, I, I believe in. It's cruel and it's unnecessary. But because of Paul's imprisonment, he found a way to find purpose and meaning in the middle of this mess. He could have used any number of words here, but he chose the word because. He didn't say, even though I'm in prison, or since I'm in prison, or in spite of the fact that I'm in prison. The purposeful choice of the word because shows us that Paul is not, is not trying to make the best out of a bad situation, but instead believes that the bad situation can be redeemed for something positive, and therefore God is still in this with him. His language was not one of a victim. His language is, is language of empowerment. He doesn't sound limited by his own limitations. In the midst of incarceration, Paul shifts his focus to how he can wield this opportunity to make something good come from it. That is the result of mature faith and years of surrendering 
to the call to follow Jesus on the way because, because it is the same way that Jesus took as well. So I want to tell you about Street Fam. You know, if you know me, I can't, I can't not talk about this. Street Fam is a group of unhoused people who live in Peoria. And in their encampment. So if you were to make your way on outreach with my team down to the camp, the first thing you would notice is a giant welcome sign greeting everyone who enters that space. There's a smaller sign letting people know that they are welcome to grab a cold bottle of water from one of the coolers in the food tent, and they are welcome to stay for as long as they needed. There's also an addendum at the bottom of that that says, but don't steal anything because we don't call the police around here. Right? So accountability is built into that welcome as well. You'll likely be greeted by Doug, Heather, or Clown. His name is John, but he has a big clown tattoo on his head. They're all kind of the keepers of the camp and seen as leaders there. Doug and Heather are known as mom and dad. They would gladly reach out on your behalf to Jolt or to Lula or to Amago if you needed a tent, a sleeping bag, food, or just connected to resources. So when Clown was recently arrested for trespassing on private property while crossing a local business's parking lot to catch a bus to work, the rest of the camp flew into action, contacting me and my staff to begin the work of providing needed support and advocacy for Clown. They knew he was going to be arrested and taken to jail and would need coordinated efforts to secure bail and transportation back to camp to notify his employer that he wouldn't be in, into work for the scheduled double shift that he was working today, that day. Clown was shaken and heavy-hearted, but he'd be the first to tell you that he knows there were people on the outside who loved him and were fighting for him on his behalf. What we witnessed was a beautiful course of action set into motion that would end in a fundamental change in how the business would treat those who lived in the wooded encampment behind their property. Let me give you a rundown of my week last week. We put out a mass call for, for action to protest this business and their inhumane treatment of people. Not arguing about the trespassing. There's a way that you can treat people that's humane. There's also, because there was this ban on trespassing in this parking lot, we have not been able to remove trash from the encampment. So now you're facing a serious public health risk. There, are, there were nearly 100 bags of trash that were building up. The rodents and the disease that were prevalent there we're not going to stay inside the confines of that camp for very long. Those are public health issues. We made a strategic decision that I would trespass on property that night with cameras rolling to try to be arrested. We'd already pre-planned bail. We wanted to publicly shame this business and use media coverage to leverage them. They're also trying to, they just put their business up on the auction. That's important too. Not good press, right? Instead, we ended up in mediation with Peoria Police Department, in which I was accused of bullying a 75-year-old white wealthy woman who owned the business. We spoke truth to power and held wealth and whiteness accountable. And eventually, we reached an agreement and are now able to continue providing services to the camp via access through their property. Clown later told me that as much as he hated the experience of being arrested again because he has a history 
of incarceration trauma. He was glad it happened because things have changed some and now maybe some real change is possible. The clown found meaning in this experience and it activated a group of people to fight for change. Paul goes on then after that, talking about the trials and the tribulations and the way that we respond to each other and the friendships that we have to talk about the role of humility in the life of a Christian. See, change cannot happen if we're always in a defensive posture, or it may happen anyway, but we'll exhaust ourselves fighting the inevitable, or we may miss the blessing on the other side. Change also cannot happen when, we're, when we are too proud or think more highly of ourselves than we should. So humility allows for opportunities when certainty tells us there's nothing else. So what does humility look like in the average person? I can tell you what it actually would have looked like in that situation. Because see, there was a third way. It wasn't a fight or flight. It wasn't an argue and protest and threaten or avoid and ignore. I could have also just asked people to help buy, buy memberships to the gym. Both would have been mutually beneficial for the company, the business, and it would give people access to work out, which would be great for health, and access to showers. There's a third way there. And even though that action, I believe, was justified, it wasn't born out of humility. Right? So even sometimes when we try to do the right things, we can still miss the mark. So what does humility look like in the average person? Paul wants the readers in Philippi to know that humility is the defining characteristic in a Christian's life and is also a great source of joy. So C.S. Lewis says this, Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, swarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he is nobody. Probably all you will think of about him is that he seems cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. And if you do dislike him, it will only be because you feel a little envious of anyone that seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. Paul sees Jesus as the ultimate example of humility. And he does this by asking four questions in this letter. They're rhetorical, but they're good questions nonetheless. So he asks, is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Is there any comfort from his love? Is there any fellowship together in the spirit? And are your hearts tender and compassionate? Maybe these aren't so much questions uh, as they are statements about what it looks like to be transformed by Jesus. So maybe a different way to say that is you are encouraged for belonging to Christ. You are comforted by his love. You have fellowship in the spirit and your hearts are tender and compassionate. You cannot be those things if you do not have humility. You cannot be those things if you constantly place yourself above others as more deserving or more entitled or more worthy. And this is echoed in the Old Testament through the prophet Ezekiel um, in, in Ezekiel chapter 26, 36. He, he says this, God, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. And I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender responsive heart. This is a theme throughout all of scripture when it describes transformation. It's an important distinction because the rest of Paul, of what Paul is going to describe is not instructions, 
someone will try and accomplish out of discipline or out of a master plan, the humility and servanthood Paul is going to describe is already in you if you have already believed in Jesus and are attempting to walk in his ways. When you received your new heart, it already came pre-programmed with humility. Paul wants the Philippians to run from pride as if it's the plague. Instead, Paul wants them to experience the joy of humility, agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, being in unity, loving one another, and working together with one mind and one purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. This is another countercultural message. Joy is not found in selfishness. And a hallmark of a transformed life is the desire to serve others. So if that's the case, then what does obedience to that look like? Well, long story short here, and we could spend a lot of time talking about the importance of obedience, but I just want to make two quick points. Is one, a former pastor of mine used to say this all the time, is that most of us who claim to follow Jesus are educated well beyond our obedience. We know the right things to do in most situations. We just don't often do it. Another thing uh, that I want to point is that obedience really comes down to just becoming muscle memory. The more you do something, the easier it becomes doing, and the easier it becomes to continue doing. So obedience may be hard initially, but with time and practice, it becomes reflexive. This is what is meant by the working out of our salvation. I want you to think about working out. Eventually what you do just becomes muscle memory. So now that God has given you faith, work hard to grow it. Would you say that you've been working out your faith? Are there any results to show for your relationship to Christ? What are the fruits? All of us can probably think of things we could have or should have done to grow spiritually. But shame is not the point of these questions, though. So before you start beating yourself up, remember what Paul says. For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. This isn't a question of you exercising will as much as it is surrendering to the power that is given you to exercise God's will. And as a result of that, Paul wraps up his letter with the theme of contentment. To me, that says that all the things that went before that, this is the end result. So at the end of this letter to the Philippians, we get our final reminder that joy does not depend on our circumstances. It's found in contentment. As we close out Paul's letter, it's worth remembering the conditions in which Paul is writing. He's imprisoned in Rome, chained to guards most hours of the day and night, and is awaiting a trial that could easily end in his execution. And to make matters worse, local Roman church leaders are jealous of Paul and are spreading rumors and lies about him to ruin his reputation. And to add insult to injury, Paul has to pay rent on the house he's in, under house arrest in. So Paul takes the final few lines of this letter to thank the Philippians for their help. Because when they heard of his situation, they took up a collection and sent him a helper to cover some of his expenses and provide him support. So Paul wanted to make it clear that while he is grateful for the financial support, that that is not what gives him such great joy. He even says, not that I was ever in need, but thank you. Paul is lifting up the virtue of 
and power of contentment. And he does this in two ways. One, he talks about contentment in terms of physical needs. With everything or without anything, with a full stomach or an empty stomach, with plenty or little, Paul seems to be saying, I can make whatever I have work with whatever I have to work with. I want you to think of your, your great-grandparents, survivors of the, of the Depression. They got by on so much less than we have today, and now I will lose my mind if my internet stalls on me. Not even lose, I don't, we hardly ever lose connection. If it's just slow, right, I lose my mind. If I don't know where my phone is at, I have a panic, like I'm a heroin-addicted person going through withdrawals, right? But to live with so much less and to be content with that, the more I have, the more dependent I am on those things. So when I don't have them and I don't maintain them, that causes me distress. But Paul also says that he has learned the secret of contentment in every situation. And this goes much deeper than money. Paul implies that his soul has peace no matter what happens around him or what is taken from him and what is given to him. And this, I believe, is what he really means in Philippians 4.13. I can do anything through Christ who gives me strength. This verse, maybe more than any other verse in Scripture, has been taken so out of context and so misused and misapplied in myriad of situations. He did not intend for this verse to be an inspirational bumper sticker. He was trying to say, what he was trying to say was much more important than that. So let me paraphrase verses 12 and 13 like this. I know I have needs, but I'm not worried. I've learned by now that if God has me here for a specific purpose, he will make sure I have everything I need to be able to do what he wants me to do. Paul is confident that he is right in the middle of God's will. And when you are in the middle of God's will, you can trust that God will provide. And it's worth pointing out that Paul had learned this. It wasn't a special revelation or an intuitive thought or something he memorized from his Jewish textbooks. Trusting God when everything around you is getting worse is something that can only be learned through experience. So now, I told you about all the things that was happening to Paul while he was writing this. Let me tell you about the other things that are not documented in, in the text uh, throughout the scriptures that Paul endured as well. Here's a brief and likely incomplete list of the hardships Paul's faced over the years. Five times he received 40 lashes minus one, because under Roman law, you can only lash somebody 39 times. 40 was illegal. Five times. Where are my math people? Five times 39? A lot. Yes, yes, okay. Three times he was beaten with rods. One time he was stoned. Do you know what stoning is? They take huge stones and they throw them at you, they, usually with the intent to kill you. Three times. He was shipwrecked. One time he spent an entire day and night in open sea, just floating around, fighting off sharks. Yes, I mean shark week, I don't know, right? Um, he was constantly on the move, dangers from crossing rivers, dangers from bandits, danger from fellow Jews, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the cities, dangers in the country, dangers at sea, danger from false believers. He labored and he toiled. He went without sleep. He has known hunger and thirst and has been cold and naked, plus just the heavy burden of caring for all the churches. He knew it firsthand. If you've ever met a truly content person, you know how refreshing it is. They have a joy and peace that others don't possess, and their circumstances do not dictate their joy. 
King David shared the same exact sentiment in one of the most famous psalms. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. Listen to this, and I want you to envision Paul. I want you, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures, and he leads me beside quiet waters, and he refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valleys, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You provide a table before me in the presence of my enemies, and you anoint my head with oil, and my cup overflows. Surely your goodness and your love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Most days, my faith is hanging on by a thread, if I'm honest with you. The work I do exposes me to great depravity and hardship and trauma, and it is hard to hold on to hope. Some days that thread is dangerously frayed, and I feel like it could break at any moment. And just when I think it's about ready to break, I am reminded about God's faithfulness to not abandon us. And I see that in a former sex worker who loves the marginalized and forgotten so extravagantly that she's literally carried dying people out of a ditch that they lived in. And just when I think I'm ready to break, I see God's hope in a young, brand-new emergency room nurse who fights with arrogant residents and attendings for better treatment of drug users who are overdosing. And I see it in a church that lets the homeless sleep in their vegetables during the winter in spite of the challenges of doing so. And I see it in the tender heart of a woman whose husband comes out as gay and provides loving hospice care as his health fades away. And I see it in a community that holds space for all the misfits and weirdos and queerdos who don't find acceptance anywhere else. And I see it in the righteous anger in a pastor who will go toe-to-toe with a police chief that wears toxic masculinity on his shoulder like a badge. I see it in a small group of people who quietly and without any fanfare weekly pack sack lunches for distribution of the homeless and the food insecure. And I see it in my trans friends who refuse to be anything but who they were wonderfully and fearlessly created to be. And I see it in friends who are willing to bail my ass out of jail if need be for standing on the side of justice. And I see it in the faces of one of the most arrested people in central Illinois who is now fighting to save lives by distributing Narcan to to prevent overdoses. And I see it in the tears of my wife over the neglected children who deserve so much better than what they have. And because of that, I still cling to the shred of faith because of all of you. And that is the source of my joy when my life gets hard. And this, I believe, is what Paul was saying to his beloved Philippians in his prison letter. And I, like Paul, am deeply grateful for all of you. Grace and peace.